Thanks, Jen. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you, my name is David Smith. And uh, I know there's a little bit of a tight parking scenario outside right now. If you guys, just remind you, we do have parking in the middle school. And uh, Cody Fields will pay you $20 per time that you do. He just mentioned that. But we uh, are a little tight over here. But over there, there are hundreds of spots. And I think the walk is like three and a half, four minutes. It's not too much. But just want to remind you, if you can, that would be super helpful. So well, as we get going here today, let me, uh, let me share a quick story. It was a few months ago, and uh, I was kind of in a goofy mood. I think it's the best way to describe it. I had just had a giant sweet tea from McAllister Deli. And so I was wired with sugar. And I'm walking down this hallway right here where we check in our, student, our kids into kids ministry. And right on the left, as you go through the sign-up area, there's a nursery. You guys know the nursery? And it's basically a, a door with a little window. And I look in there, and it's Linda Martin. You guys know Linda Martin? She's one of our prayer leaders. She runs her own prayer ministry. Her name is on all the cards. She may be one of the first steps you take into asking for prayer from the church. And as I look in there, the lights are dim, and Linda just has this peaceful, like, prayerful look on her face. Her eyes are closed. And so I decided... I should interrupt her. Like, that'd be the right thing to do in this moment. So I go to the other nursery room, and the nurseries are connected in the middle by a door on the inside that's been cut in two because it's really good to have both nursery rooms with the top part open. You can communicate between volunteers, but the kids can't get through. Well, because of that, and that little kind of gash in the middle, you can speak through it. You can get sound through both the rooms. So as Linda is in this state of prayerful bliss, I get right there in the middle, and I just go, Linda, this is the Lord. And she does nothing, and I'm a little frustrated. Like, I've got this adolescence, pay attention to me thing going on, and so I try again. I just go, Linda, this is the Lord, and give David Smith $30 or something like that, and no response. So at this point, I'm frustrated. I swing the door open. I barge in. And of course, Linda is there in the middle of a prayer session with somebody else. A little awkward, right? A little embarrassing. (laughs) But it is at least a staff member. It is a staff member. So we joke around. No big deal. No harm, no foul. And I move on. Well, two days later, I'm meeting with somebody who is brand new to North Star. They want to know all about the church. And as we're hanging out together, and by the way, let me back up. If you are new, I would love to grab coffee with you, jump on the phone. I understand that most newcomer classes and most healthy, mature churches, like they take you down a track and they give you pizza and information. And we do a little bit of that. But we have found just the one-on-one connection, like, is so valuable. We are never too busy. I would love, love to meet with you. Jump online, get all of our information. But I'm meeting with a newcomer. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, of all the stories I could tell, right, I start telling him this story for some reason. I mean, I've been at North Star from the beginning, 21 years. So I don't tell him a story of hope and inspiration. I tell him this. And at the end of the story, he looks at me. And I kid you not, he just goes, you guys are a really healthy church, (laughs) right? And that caught me off guard because I was assuming he's going to blame me or blasphemy, you know, speaking as the voice of the Lord. And as we kept unraveling all this, I said, why in the world does that make you think that we're a healthy church? We guys don't take yourself very seriously, you have fun. But then he also talked a little bit about the church he had just come from. And really that's the pattern we've seen over the last three years. And the reason why we're doing this series is so many of you 
who have been new to North Star in the last few years, you have shared with us that you have come from a health, unhealthy church environment. You've called it unhealthy. It's not us saying it, but a church that you've deemed unhealthy. Maybe a church where Jesus is secondary, not primary, where the agenda is more political than it is biblical. Places where there's an unhealthy pattern of how money is spent, how conflict is handled, how micromanaging happens, and maybe even a place where constant sin just completely is covered over time and time again. Like, those are descriptors of an unhealthy culture. I had a friend about a few years ago share with me that he had grown up going to church, the kind of friend that just shocks you, like, oh, really? That's, that's amazing to me, because he just has zero interest in God at all. And he said what had happened is that for the first 16 years of his life, he was at this church. And then one Sunday, at 16 years old, sitting there with his parents in the main auditorium, the pastor decides to say something that isn't abnormal for the church, but hit my friend in a personal way. And he said, I didn't know it at the time, but I recognized it was an unhealthy church early on. And he said, we were always talking about what we were against instead of what we're for. And on that specific Sunday, the pastor started talking about how he is against long-haired skateboarders. And that was a thing back in the 90s. Like the early 90s, the skateboarders were going to ruin and take over the entire world. And so he's sitting there as a long-haired skateboarder listening to the pastor talk about how we're against this group of people, their culture, and their way. And as you can imagine, that was the last time he ever stepped into a church. 35 years of raising his family, living life aggressively against God and against the church. Not because Jesus is against skateboarders, but because he was part of an unhealthy church. 35 years later, still impacted by that moment. Here's the problem. There are so many people, including Christians, that do not see the church as a healthy place. They see it as a rest stop for deceit, hypocrisy, lack of trust, which is why in our country today, the average attendance of people going to church is lower than it's ever been in the history of our nation. And now here's where I've made a big mistake, and that for years I've tried to convince people, hey, North Star, we're not like that and we're different, and we're healthy. And you know what? That's not what people need to hear. People don't need another church trying to sell them promises of safety. What they need is for somebody to listen, to empathize, to reflect, say they're sorry, and address their church hurt instead of my church solution. And so I'm gonna do better with that. I'm gonna do better. Because when it comes to an unhealthy church environment, I want you to hear me. We are not gonna point fingers at anyone. The only people we're gonna point fingers at is ourselves. Because as much as I love this church and this congregation, and as much as I brag about you guys 24-7, there is always elements of unhealthiness in every single church. And so we're gonna address that hurt during this series. And my, on behalf of the Big C Church, which just means the global church, on behalf of North Star, I just wanna kick this off by saying sorry that if you have experienced any unhealthiness in any church at any time, I am sorry. Whether it was here or somewhere else, it doesn't matter. We see you, we empathize with you, and we are sorry for that unhealthiness. Listen, I can live with the fact that North Star may never be the greatest church at discipleship, at outreach, 
the greatest church at worship or at speaking. But I'll tell you what, the leadership of this church will not accept anything less than us being a healthy church. I can promise you that. We are committed to the best of our ability to be a healthy church. And only Jesus can, of course, lead that way. And so this morning, we're gonna start defining what does that mean? Because if we can define it, then there's a better chance we can be it. So let me pray and we'll jump into it. So Father, thank you so much. Lord, there is no way that in my own strength, I can convey at all what a healthy church in your kingdom looks like. So Holy Spirit, take over my mouth, my mind, my heart. Lord, give all of us the mind of Christ today. Lord, the the scripture we're gonna look at as we tilt our heads, as we wrestle with it, Father, we need your voice to come out loud and clear to help us to understand and to move forward. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, in honor of the new Pathway Journal, today I'm gonna do something a little different. You guys are not gonna have to talk to anybody else. You can keep ignoring the person next to you, but I am gonna ask you to participate. Now, before we get there, what we're gonna do is we're gonna open up to Psalm 132. And so the Psalms, which is in our reading plan right now, we'll be going through in this series, is an anthology of Hebrew religious hymns. That's probably the best way to summarize what the Psalms are all about. Now, the Israelites are an unhealthy congregation if there ever was one. I mean, go back, look at the wilderness, read the book of Judges. Their whole desire to have a king is just to look like everybody else. An incredibly unhealthy congregation. But when it comes to Psalm 132, I believe this is written during a time of great prosperity for the Israelites. King Solomon is king. Things are going great. He is the son of King David. And what many theologians believe, they don't all agree, but some believe that this psalm was written to be read at the dedication of the great temple of God. Huge moment. The glory of God fills the temple. The ark is brought into the temple. The worship of that time was the slaughtering of animals as a sacrifice to the Lord. They said there was so much worship, they couldn't even count all the animals that were slaughtered that day. So it is a bloodbath, to say the least, but kind of in a good way, but it is a scene of all scenes. It is the stuff of legends, the dedication of the temple of God. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And so as we jump into Psalm 132, I'm not going to read it to you. I'm not going to break it down right away. What I want you to do is look at the screen behind me. And you're going to see verses 1 through 6. I want you to read it a number of times. And I want you to ask yourself these three questions. What seems to be King David's great passion? What did King David deny himself? And what is the it in verse 6? Now, why are we doing this? Because I know what we're going to end up doing here is you guys provide feedback. We're going to break all the social contracts and rules. But I want you guys to get a taste of what it's like in our pathway groups. It's not one person talking. It's everyone contributing. What is God saying to me through these passages? So two minutes, look at it, read it to yourself, ask those questions to yourself, and I'll jump back up.
right, let's give this a shot. So if you've got a thought, you raise your hand, I'll call on you. But what do you think King David's great passion was? Any thoughts? Anybody, anybody? This is a tough one. The first one to break the ice, Russ. Yeah, that's absolutely wrong, Russ. I'm sorry, the door. We can ask you to leave right now. <laughs> that's absolutely it. It's, it's building the temple of the Lord. Russ is right. The house of God, David's passion and desire for the Lord. I want to build you this temple. Now, what was the self-denial of David? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I can't see if I can see a hand. Uh, he wasn't going to rest until he found somewhere. This. He was like, I will not go home. I will not yep. Absolutely. So the denial of self-David, of self-David, of, of David, of King David, is that he so badly wanted to build this temple. He wanted nothing more, and God says to him, you're not going to do it. In fact, I'm going to give it to your son. I mean, you guys ever been in that situation? You so badly want to do something. Pick me. Let me be the one. And God says, no, you can, as my brother back there said, you can find the ground. You can gather all the stuff. And David's like, I am not going to rest. I'm going to sacrifice so I get it all together. But Solomon's going to be the one to build it. He's the one that's going to be in the spotlight, standing there in the picture, right? Lifting his arms during the dedication. So how about this last question, though? It's always confusing the Bible when it doesn't tell us exactly what it is, especially when it is important. What do you guys think it was? It in verse 6. Any ideas? Yeah, Don? The Ark of the Covenant. Well, that's right, but you weren't supposed to say the right answer first. You're going to give other people a chance, but Don is right. Well, actually, I'm not sure if Don is right. There are different theologians that think it's the call to worship, just saying out to all of Israel, come to the temple and worship. But here's why I think the ark may be the answer. Look at this word, epiphtha. It is another word for Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the hometown of David, but it's also the birthplace of Jesus. And so whenever you talk about those two, I want you to imagine a line going from David to Jesus. And the reason why is because along that line, the throne of God travels. From David, it's prophesied all throughout the scriptures that the Messiah, the anointed one, will come from his lineage and be the king that sits on the throne of God forever, which of course is Jesus. And so when you hear the phrase throne of God in the Old Testament, the picture that should pop into our mind is the Ark of the Covenant because the Israelites always saw the Ark. This is the throne of God on earth. There it is behind me. This golden box holds the Ten Commandments. They can carry it around. It represents the presence and the throne of God on earth. But there's a second word here that leads to the ark. It's the word J-R. It says, we came upon it in the fields of J-R. And J-R is an abbreviation of Kiriath-Jerim. Now, that's just a city where the ark was located while it was lost away from the people, then eventually brought back to Jerusalem. And so you kind of look at those two words and break them down. It seems pretty clear that it is the ark of the covenant, the throne in the presence of God on earth. Now, in this next section, again, keep the ark in mind, I believe we come to one question that this whole message hinges on. So for two more minutes, I want you to read verse 7 through 9 and only ask yourself one question. Is there a difference between the dwelling place and the resting place? And if so, what is that difference? So just look at some other key words, words like footstool, priests, righteousness. What do you think? Read it through a few times and ask that question.
All right, what do you guys think? Is there a difference between these two places? Any thoughts? And if so, why or why not? Yeah. Gosh, I wish I had a microphone. I go to him. Let's say, we'll say that one more time. You, it was so good. That's really the, We could go home. If you get this again, you've nailed the talk. We can go home. Grab your door on the way out. When he dwells with me, oh, I dwell with him. I, he rests in presence. It'd be a great tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dwells on the earth. When I come before him, he rests in my heart. That is beautiful. Um, but it's wrong, and uh, no, it's, it's totally right. Here's what I put for my answer. I put down yes and no. I put both, so I've got yes and no down for that, but you're really hitting the heart. If you go and look at the Hebrew word for dwelling, it's tabernacle. You guys may remember the tabernacle was the mobile house of God. They'd pack it up, pull it back out. It's a tent. The ark would go inside into the Holy of Holies, but eventually they'd build a temple, that was David's idea. We want this to be a resting place, a stationary place where God's presence and throne always dwells. And so I would see the dwelling place as the entire house of God. It's where the people go to encounter God. But the resting place, I would say, and again, I could be wrong here, but I think it's the location within the temple where the ark remains. And so if I were to summarize it, I would say the dwelling place physically is the temple it's the house of god the resting place is the throne room of god it's called the holy of holies it's where the ark the throne and the presence of god resides and so the mistake that we can make in this conversation is that we value the temple over the ark which is really kind of silly because the temple without the ark is kind of like a castle without a king it's you know think about when the ark went into the temple, immediately filled with the cloud of glory from God. There's no cloud of glory. There's none of that if the ark doesn't enter the temple. There's also just this fascinating verse. Most of you won't care, but I think it's exciting. Revelations eleven nineteen. John has a vision of the eternal uh, temple, and the only thing that's mentioned in there is the ark of the covenant. Nothing else. No priests, no this, no that. And why is the ark so important? Because that's the throne and the presence of God. What makes the ark so special is it represents two of the most important truths about God. The ark represents the position of God and the proximity of God. The position of God is that he is king. He's always been king and always will be king. That's his position. The proximity is that the king is here. The king is not some another state. You have to go find it. You have to go look for it. When he say yes, the presence, the king is here. That's what the ark is always communicating. They walk the ark in. They pull it into the temple. People see it. Position, proximity. God is king and the king is here. Representing the throne and the presence of God. But here's the problem. We can give the ark all the fancy titles and analogies and metaphors that we want. But the ark is eventually lost, never to be seen again. In the sixth century, the Babylonians come in, they conquer Jerusalem, carry the Israelites off into exile, destroy the temple, and the ark goes lost. I don't care how many times you've watched Indiana Jones, the ark was never found. It is still lost to this day. 
In fact, all the sacred spaces of the Old Testament, they all eventually collapse. The garden was infected. The promised land was invaded. The tabernacle was replaced. Right? The temple was destroyed and the ark was lost. And so even though in verse 14, God says, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. The ark was and still is lost. That's what's so confusing about verse 14. Like you can trip on it so easily. Wait a minute, God is saying this place, the location of the ark, my throne room is gonna be my resting place forever and ever and ever. And so is this a lie? Is this a typo? Did God misjudge the situation? Did somebody mistype the interpretation? But when we come to verse 17, it starts to make sense. God puts a twist in the story. Here's what it says, still in Psalm 132. He says, here, and that word here, that's probably the most important word. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. So what does that mean? Our first thought is like, oh, here, he must be talking about the temple or the resting place, or the throne room, or the Holy of Holies. But I actually think the word here is referring to King David's heart. Because King David had a heart to build a resting place for God. And in this resting place, what David understood is, God, I'm not just inviting you to visit, to come fix my problems, bless my plans, right? Shake hands, kiss babies. He's saying, God, we're inviting you to stay. We don't want you to leave. And what a what a challenge, right, for myself when I was reading that. Because I started thinking, what does my invitation to God look like? Am I inviting him to visit or am I inviting him to stay? Because when someone's coming to visit in my house, I pull out a sleeping bag, maybe a cot. Here's the bathroom you can use. Here's a towel we washed a couple months ago. Like, it's really not much effort. But if I'm inviting somebody to stay, to truly move in, Maybe you're putting an addition on your house and you're preparing and planning about how the relational dynamics are going to change. You do anything you can to make this person comfortable so they can stay for the long haul. That's the heart of David. I'm building you a resting place, God, not just to visit, but I'm inviting you to stay. And so it's from this heart that this horn for David grows. And what is the horn? We've already talked about it. It is that lineage that goes from David all the way to Jesus. The horn that's gonna grow is the fact that from David's family, from his line, the Messiah, the king that will sit on the throne forever is going to come. That's the horn. And so when we understand that, all of a sudden, verse 17 changes because what we're reading about here, this resting place is no longer, right? The final pit stop. It's not the target. It's not the end destination. The resting place of Psalm 132, it's a lamp. It's a foreshadowing. It's just simply a light that's pointing us to the final resting place. Because in the Old Testament, the resting place of God was a physical place. But in the New Testament, the resting place of God, it is a physical person, the person of Jesus. And so if you want to summarize this psalm, I would say it's this. It's a temporary resting place pointing to the eternal and final resting place. Jesus Christ who died, who rose, who ascended and will return again. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent back the Holy Spirit. And so when you and I say yes to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we throw it all at his feet and say, you are the one, you're the king on the throne of my heart. When we say that, we are immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. 
the position and the proximity of God, his power and his presence. So we can live like Jesus on earth and live forever with him in heaven. And so just how the ark of God was brought into the temple, the Holy Spirit is brought into our bodies. First Corinthians chapter 6, 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, you've received from God. And so as a new creation filled with the Holy Spirit, the position and proximity of God now lives inside of you. The throne of God is not in a temple, it's in your heart. As if somebody has taken the Ark of the Covenant and planted it in your soul. So what that means is that the resting place is no longer this wooden box the Israelites carry around. The resting place is you. You are the resting place of God. The proximity, the power, the position, you are now that location. The ark was constantly conveying two things. God is king and the king is here. That's what a resting place does. So therefore, if we are the resting place of God, our lives should never stop declaring the proximity and position of God. Jesus is king and the king is here. There is no greater message. And so maybe for some of us, that's where the church hurt has come in because we've been part of places that have said, no, there actually is a greater message than Jesus is king and the king is here. And it's more important to convey messages that build the church's branding, that pushes politics, that measures morality. And when that happens, people get hurt. I wanted to invite up a friend today who was part of a very unhealthy situation but the church they were at is in Cincinnati. And so I didn't want her up here sharing her story. And then people going, oh, I, yeah, I used to go to church with her. I know where that is. I don't want that at all. So I asked her to write a letter and I'm gonna read this letter. And as I read it, if you've never had any sort of church hurt, this letter is perfect for any sort of unhealthiness anyone's ever gone through. Relationally, work, home, friendships, because it addresses any sort of unhealthiness we've ever gone through. Let me read this, it'll take a few minutes. But as I do, I want you just to imagine, you're gonna hear it, the heart of this woman, that Jesus truly is the king of her life. She says, when the unhealthiness started to bubble up, it was all quite a shock to the system. Feeling hurt, overwhelmed, grieving a lot of loss of relationships, grieving what we were building as a church and what it became, grieving the work of the enemy and the lives of the believers, feeling stupid, feeling blind, and ashamed for not seeing the problem sooner. In the months leading up to the time of leaving this church, I actually started attending the School of Kingdom Ministry. It was during this time that the Lord began to do some significant work in my heart, learning more about the Holy Spirit, doing some serious course correction regarding the Lord's character, nature, and how he feels about me and others, and revealing the truth of my identity in him. I believe my heart needed to learn these things in order to move forward in obedience and not only removing myself from an unhealthy situation, but also moving forward in healing and growth. Together with this community built during those several sweet months together as a class, this provided a safe and supportive place for me to be able to not only process the mess I was leaving, but also have a place to land once I did exit. I have also had additional long-standing friends who have walked alongside of me to process with me, and I've also met with professional counselors. Forgiveness has been key. Okay, if you're zoned out, zone back in here. This last paragraph, this is the gold. 
Think about the unhealthiness you've experienced in your own life. She says, forgiveness has been key, ongoing and difficult at times, especially without acknowledgement of the wrongdoing or an apology of those who hurt me. However, it brings much freedom, and I've come to learn that bitterness is pure poison. I've asked the Lord to protect me from this. I also remind myself frequently that the Lord is the only one with the true account of what happened, regardless of my memory or my seemingly accurate version of the story. I remind myself often that justice belongs to God alone. It has also been a sobering and helpful thing for me to remember that these are the king's sons and daughters. And my response and posture towards them needs to keep in mind whose they are. Can't you hear it in the letter? Jesus is king and the king is here. Not in some far off land, but right here, right now. So what can we do as a church? If we're gonna be a healthy church, we have to be a collection of people whose main message is that of the resting place. Jesus is king and the king is here. We're gonna have to have other conversations about what that means, how to live that out. With the place that we're going in the next year, we're gonna have to have conversations about politics, we will. About morality, about the interpretation of the Bible. Sure, all those conversations are gonna have to happen in some format, no doubt about it. How do we handle those things? How do we discuss those things in a healthy way? But if we're gonna be a resting place for God, if we're gonna be a healthy church, then the song that we sing loudest and the first song that we sing has to be that Jesus is king and the king is here because you are the resting place of God. And so how do we apply that? What do we do with that? Let me just give you two phrases and I'll end with this. Be with Jesus and be like Jesus. Before we do anything, I want us to be a church that understands what does it mean to rest and be with Jesus? The kind of people don't just invite Jesus to come in, bless my prayer, but Jesus, I wanna be with you. I'm inviting you to stay. You know, that's why we do the prayer room because during that hour on Friday, we're gonna have another prayer room. It's gonna be at noon on Tuesdays, starting in September. We are exercising the muscles to say, Jesus, I'm inviting you to stay. I'm not asking you to solve anything right now. I'm not asking you to do A, B, or C, but I just wanna be with you. If we're gonna be a resting place, we have to learn to rest and be with Jesus. And the last part is just be like Jesus. That's what this pathway is all about. It's not perfect, but it's just our way of saying, how do we together grow and become like Jesus and live like him? Over the next six weeks, we're gonna be looking at six other components of a healthy church. We're gonna pull them from our reading plan. And again, let me just say one more time, if we're gonna be a healthy church, a resting place of God, then the main message of our lives needs to be this. Jesus, you are king and the king is here. Let me pray. So Father, thank you for this time. As we move into a time of prayer and communion and worship, we just ask, Lord, would you have your way? Would you move aside anything that's distracting right now, Lord? Whether it's the temperature of this room or whether it's things we have to get to later on today, Father, help us to be with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I just, what an honor, right, to, to be able to say that we are part of that resting place for the Lord. I like to claim that I have a double portion right now because I have a, a little one in me, so double it, right? We're going to continue to double it.
I'm gonna read that verse 17 that David uh, read to us a couple seconds ago. It says, here I will make a horn grow for David and set a lamp for my anointed one. It's an invitation for him to come and to stay. And um, I don't know if you know this, but when this building was actually even being um, renovated for us, our buddy Chad made an intentional mode, uh, an intentional um, decision to have a lamp over here, three lights in the inside, one for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So every time we actually have a service here, we have that on. It's our lamp. It's our, it's our reminder here saying, this is a resting place. This, you are invited here not to come and, and um, dwell and leave, but to come and rest and reside here. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, this morning as I was reading in the, the reading plan, uh, Psalm 27, I had to kind of chuckle as I knew what, what the sermon was coming up today. And I would just love to even kind of read, pray this, this little, uh, um, these couple verses over us here now. So if you want to stand up, one thing I love about this church is that we actually respond. Um, it's not just about hearing and not just about information, but about having a heart response to that. And so I'm going to read uh, four through six here. And again, Psalm 27, it just so beautifully fits in here. I'm going to um, read, pray it. This is, this is something that I do in my own time with the Lord. So find a posture of your own prayer. Um, and here we go. So one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Lord, every single day of my life, I want to dwell in your house. I wanna keep you primary, I wanna keep you above anything else that I'm doing or thinking or working towards, Lord. Let, let me dwell, let us dwelling in, in you um, be the one thing that our, that our hearts are focused on, Lord. Let us gaze upon the beauty of, the, of you, Lord, and seek you in your temple. Lord, you, you have said that we are the temple. That means we get to seek you out and our fellow brothers and sisters here. We get to seek you out. We get to, to, to mine the gold out of the other believers here, Lord. We get to seek you in your temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in, my, in his dwellings. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me upon a rock. Lord, you care for us, you shelter us. You know when we're in trouble, you know when we need you. And so Lord, I, I declare that, Lord, if anyone is in a season of trouble or season of needing sheltering, Lord, shelter them. Set us high upon your rock. Verse six says, then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At this tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. Let our, let our heart and our, our body response, Lord, be one of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, you call us to read your word. You call us to sing your word back to you. You call us, you actually make it so easy for us just to repeat, Lord, what you, what you have said to us back to you. And so, Lord, we will sing with joy of your goodness, Lord, of your hope. Lord, the King is coming. You have come, your kingdom is here, and you are coming. Open up our eyes to see it and open up our ears to hear it, Lord. Holy Spirit, come as we, as we um, seek you deeper, as we lean into you deeper, Lord. In your name we pray. Prayer teams, I'll invite you guys up here next. 
um, come and receive prayer again. This is a chance to, to respond. Is there anything that you are um, would, would love to have prayer, uh, a partnership with you? We, we love to take authority over the, the darkness, over the kingdom of darkness. We are part of the kingdom of light. And so let us pray with you. Um, let us let us war with you and then come and receive communion as well this is a chance to remember that what what he did on the cross that he died for us and he um, made a way that we could not make for ourselves so come and receive communion come and receive prayer and I'll come and close this at the end